Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Indie Genes, where we explore the most fascinating ideas and conversations of our time. And it's been a while since we last spoke, but I'm thrilled to be back with an exciting lineup of new episodes and guests. In the past few months, I've had the privilege of sitting down with some truly remarkable individuals, each with their own unique insights and perspectives on the world around us. From neuroscientists to philosophers, AI professionals, historians, astronomers, and we've managed to cover a wide range of topics that I know you'll find both informative and thought-provoking. So whether you're a long-time listener of Indian Genes or just discovering this podcast for the first time, I invite you to join me as we speak to some of the most interesting minds covering the nature of consciousness to the future of artificial intelligence, from the ethics of genetic engineering to the mysteries of the cosmos. We'll explore it all with the kind of open-minded curiosity and intellectual rigor that has always been the hallmark of this podcast. My guest today is an expert in the intersection of AI, epistemology and conflict. He is currently researching how technology can be used to reduce the risks of political polarization and improve collective decision making. With a background in probability and statistics, he has conducted PhD research at King's College London on spatial preference models and their application in recommender systems. He is also a member of the Getting Plurality Research Network at the Safra Centre for Ethics at Howard University, where he is working on bridging systems and broader questions around the ethics and governance of decentralised social technologies. In addition to his academic work, He's involved in data analysis, full-stack web development, and applied statistic research for an organization that surveys 100,000 Australian school students annually on issues of resilience and mental health. He has also worked on machine learning research as part of a group working to improve the quality of reasoning in intelligence organizations at the Hunt Lab for Intelligence Research at the University of Melbourne. Today, we will discuss his recent research on feedback loops, bridging systems, and the impact of optimizing for engagement. Not to forget what everyone today is talking about, ChatGBT, we get into that as well, to try to understand fundamentally what research is telling us about these systems and what the future of ChatGBT may look like. His work is truly at the cutting edge of understanding how technology can shape our society and we here at Indian Genes are proud to present a very interesting conversation with a very special person, Luke Thorburn. So Luke, from everyone here at Indian Genes, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for taking time to meet us here online and speak to us. Why don't you let our listeners know a little bit more about you, what you are currently doing, what your interests are, and and how come you got into doing what you're doing? 
Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Joachim. Uh, my, I'm Australian. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. My background is in mathematics. Sort of, I did my undergrad and masters in very theoretical probability and statistics. But my interests are a lot more interdisciplinary. And for a long time, I've been quite interested in political conflict in society and uh, potential risks that come from uh, excessive political conflict, particularly or in including both direct risks such as political violence, but also sort of second order effects such as people being unable to collaborate effectively and address uh, important societal challenges like pandemics and uh, climate change uh, and AI risks and so on. So uh, at the moment, I'm working towards a PhD at King's College London, and I'm in a computer science department, uh, although my research is sort of crosses a few different fields. In particular, I'm focusing on the use of recommendation algorithms. So they're the algorithms that rank content on social media and other online platforms uh, to improve the quality of political conflict in society uh, and sort of loosely you can think of that as trying to reduce polarization and the risks associated with excessive polarization that's very interesting and definitely we'll get back to the research you are doing i think what you call them is platform uh, recommenders right i would i would want to understand a little bit more about that as well and we'll definitely speak about it but at the moment you are aware that the big subject around every discussion these days when it comes to AI is chat GBT. And I do know that you are not directly involved in any language processing, but I just want to understand a little bit more from your perspective about what chat GBT is to you, what you see the future of chat GBT as, and do you or can you highlight any potential benefits or risks? So I'll just leave that to you on how best do you think you would want to talk about ChatGPT? Sure. So maybe we start with just a brief recap of what ChatGPT is for listeners who aren't aware. Uh, ChatGPT is a, a language model, which means it's uh, a, a, an algorithm that's been trained on to perform the task of predicting what text comes next, given some text that has come before. Uh, so it's basically just trying to predict that there's like a, a very elaborate autocomplete trying to predict uh, how to complete some uh, sequence of text. Uh, and that framework of language modeling is very, very general because uh, basically any task, at least sort of intellectual task, can be framed as a sort of question and answer or an instruction and a uh, response to that instruction, which is all uh, subsumed in the framework of text completion. So these language models have been in recent years getting increasingly more capable and more uh, reliable at doing various sort of intellectual reasoning uh, language processing tasks. Uh, they've also been being trained on increasingly large data sets and the actual neural networks, the models themselves have been getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and ChatGPT was released late 2022 by OpenAI uh, as a, a, the sort of latest, or one of the most recent 
very large, very capable language models and uh, sort of startled a lot of people, I think, in how uh, lifelike and capable it was. I think broadly, language models, they, uh, because of the sort of pace of recent innovation, there's a lot of attention given to trying to uh, innovate and uh, capitalize and create sort of viable business models using this technology. Uh, listeners may have seen, for example, that Microsoft very quickly, as part of a partnership with OpenAI, incorporated ChatGPT into the Bing search engine. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk of uh, this sort of language model chat-based dialogue interface being, uh, to some extent, a replacement for traditional search engines, or at least a, a strong complement to traditional search engines, where instead of being or searching for a phrase or a few keywords and getting back a list of links that you then have to sort of go and read yourself, you could speak to a search engine like service in natural language and ask it questions, ask it for advice, uh, and it would not give you back a list of links, but give you back just a well-written, succinct answer that directly answers the question that you had. The challenge with all of this is that uh, uh, the language model is not in itself tied to any uh, sense of truth or reality. It's just uh, probabilistically detecting, sorry, not detecting, probabilistically predicting what words come next in a sentence uh, or in a passage of text. And so it is very likely to uh, just make stuff up that isn't true, or it's sort of confabulating what sounds plausible and fluent, uh, but there, there's no hard link tying what is generated to uh, reliable information or sound advice. Uh, and so there's a risk that if we become too reliant on such uh, algorithmically generated text, uh, at least text that's generated in this way, that we uh, sort of lose some fundamental connection to uh, what is true or uh, uh, information that contains genuine sort of authentic human intention behind it. There's, there's a lot of promise in language models for helping make knowledge work more efficient. Uh, I've talked about the search engine context, but more broadly, uh, you could you can use language models to do things like write emails for you, to uh, translate very effectively, to uh, summarize long documents that you don't have time to read uh, to if, if you have some sort of corpus of documents that you need to uh, find some answer within, you could ask a language model to basically read them all for you and just give you the answer that you want rather than uh, you having to read them all yourself. So there's a lot of use cases like that where uh, it has a lot of potential to uh, help people achieve their, their goals more quickly. Uh, but at least for the foreseeable future, there's always this inherent limitation in that there, there's no guarantee that the answers you get from using these systems match reality if you're using it to summarize a document for you. Well, with high probability, it will be 
uh, a reasonable summary of the document, there's always a chance that it will uh, tell you something about that document that didn't actually appear in the document, uh, for example. And uh, so that's sort of one category of concerns around uh, the technology. A second category of concerns relates to the extent to which this technology might be abused. And uh, an example of that is uh, just the fact that the, the, the dual use nature of very efficient uh, generation of plausible sounding text. So uh, bad actors who may wish to uh, generate very convincing spam messages personalized to the, the victims they are targeting or uh, generate a whole bunch of social media content to give the impression that public opinion is a certain way uh, or to spread uh, or create sort of false news articles uh, that uh, present misinformation or false, false information or argue for a particular slant of view. Uh, it is now with this technology much more efficient to do that at scale in a plausible way uh, and convincing way. And we don't at the moment have very many safeguards against that use of the technology. There is uh, some work that's being done to allow us to distinguish between algorithm written text and uh, human written text. So uh, for example, OpenAI who built ChatGPT, they have even just for their own sort of financial self-interest an incentive to solve this problem because uh, ChatGPT is trained on probably the majority of the text that's publicly available on the internet that has been scraped and uh, included in its training data. And uh, the challenge as more and more text that is public on the internet uh, starts to come from uh, systems such as ChatGPT, uh, then you have this sort of circular reasoning where ChatGPT is starts to train itself on text that it itself has generated. And if the, the training set is sort of uh, polluted with too much of its own generated text, then you get a sort of circular reasoning where it's no longer tied to the reality of human communication and it might start to diverge from what uh, humans recognize as plausible influence sounding, uh, sounding language. So from their perspective, they have a strong incentive to figure out a way to allow them to filter out text that has been generated by uh, another language model. And in practice, that means trying to find ways to sort of fingerprint the text that is generated by these systems so that it can be detected. Uh, but the fingerprinting needs to be done in a way that it doesn't distract or uh, reduce the utility of the text too much for actual human users of the system. So I believe, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of ways people have thought about doing this, but one, uh, one approach I've heard of is sort of strategically substituting adjectives in the language that's been generated. So one, uh, that they, OpenAI might have a, a secret set of two lists of adjectives, one that is uh, 
sort of on the allowed list and one that's on the not allowed list. And uh, they might ensure, for example, that every adjective in the text that is output by ChatGPT comes from the sort of whitelisted set of adjectives. Uh, and that would allow them to recognize the, the text that ChatGPT has uh, generated in when they later find it and scrape it off the internet. That's a fairly simplistic way of doing it. Uh, the challenge with all of this is that uh, once people know that that's what's happening, they themselves can uh, post-process any language model generated text to uh, confuse that fingerprinting and make it harder to detect. So there's a bit of an arms race dynamic, uh, which I don't suspect will ever be resolved. If, for example, through this particular platform, you were looking specifically at complex algorithmic problems, for example, would that be easier to find when compared to if you're looking for results for simpler, simpler questions? That could be very generic because in the second case now, as you mentioned, we do not have those uh, two adjectives, but the system itself now has to process or figure out what is the best fit for that answer because there is no objective answer. Right. So when, whenever it comes to subjective questions, then it depends on whatever is available. And that continues with the current issue we have with uh, fact finding, for example, because when you look at Google, if uh, I and I've seen it with myself, if I'm typing or searching for something on Google, it tends to give me the results based on my preference, probably depending on the kind of consumption I've had on social media. But the same question, and I've tried that side by side with my son and he gets uh, the first five or ten results are totally different does that uh, also happen or would that also happen in in something like chat gbt for subjective questions to my knowledge that kind of personalization is not happening at the moment i it, it's very expensive to train these models because they're so large, uh, ChatGPT, I suspect, would have cost tens of millions of dollars to train just in terms of the sort of sheer raw computing costs. Uh, but I, yeah, I strongly suspect that these will become more personalized over time and it's a lot more, it's a lot cheaper and more efficient to sort of fine tune these models so that they're uh, just a little bit so that they're personalized. Uh, for a particular, or more efficient at a particular task or responding to a particular person. Um, another aspect of your question was related to uh, sort of subjectivity of questions, and there has been a, some concern uh, that ChatGPT and other large language models exhibit certain biases. There's been accusations from certain sides of politics that uh, ChatGPT is uh, of a particular political leaning, which means that it's sort of promoting or reinforcing those views. Uh, fundamentally, it will, on average, reflect the uh, biases and sort of normative viewpoints of the data it was trained on. Uh, if it's 
have been trained on the entire internet. It sort of contains every viewpoint that's been expressed on the internet, but there will be some viewpoints that are more common than others. And uh, it, it will reflect though that sort of distribution of views in its answers. Just taking on from there, because we were speaking about the subjectivity of the information that is pushed out to us. And I would like to reference one of your papers, in fact, where you spoke about platform recommenders and how they work. Because if we look at the other platforms today, the social platform, whether it's TikTok or whether it's Twitter or whether it's Facebook, we all know in the last three or four years what that information coming out from there has led to because we've now virtually ended up with team A and team B or team B and team A, whichever way you may want to put it. It's just two teams at the moment, but that information seems to be pushing people in a particular direction, whether it was with the pandemic or whether it could be with scientific fact or whether it could be with political affiliations. But do you see that on these platforms, I I don't know about these details, but is there a way out with this? And does if there is a way out with this, is it technical? Do we need to do something algorithmically? Or do you think that this has to be curated at the curation stage? It has to be equally distributed, the information. But again, I mean, my concern is if it is that stage, then again, you have a person who's going to be involved in doing that. So that person's bias is coming. So it's it sounds a bit complicated to me, but I don't know if you have an easier way to uh, to open up this and explain this to us. Sure. Uh, well, perhaps we separate the discussion into two parts. So one part, of the first part is uh, the question of to what extent the algorithms that are used in social media and the design of social media environments has contributed to uh, a sort of polarization of politics or increase in political conflict to date. And then the second part is uh, what can we do about it going forward? Uh, because I think to some extent they're independent questions. Um, on the first question, there's a lot of popular concern over the contribution of online platforms to the dynamics of how we communicate and uh, the degree to which they're impacting politics and the degree to which we trust one another and trust expert information, the sort of resilience of democracy uh, in many parts of the world. And I am very sympathetic to those concerns. I wouldn't be working in this area if I wasn't. But at the same time, a lot of these questions are very hard to get clear general answers to scientifically or empirically. Uh, so for example, capital riots that happened in the US on January 6 in 2020, it, one question one might ask is to what extent uh, social media contributed to those riots happening. Uh, we can't observe the counterfactual in the world where there was no social media or where social media was designed differently. Uh, we can't create a, an isolated control group and uh, test uh, what caused what in using standard scientific methods. So to some extent, we're, we're limited in what we, what the extent to which we can attribute uh, those events to uh, 
some aspect of social media. But at the same time, there is a lot of research on various questions, which uh, some of which draws on traditions that predate the internet. So for example, there's a long history of research on media effects, which is the study of uh, to what extent people are affected by media that they're exposed to. There's work showing, for example, that consistent exposure to uh, cable news, if people watch highly partisan cable news, they're more likely to vote in a way that is consistent with uh, the, the views expressed on the partisan cable news channel that they watch. And that's, a, that's an effect of being exposed to media. Um, people have done similar studies on in the context of social media or showing people certain tweets or Facebook posts or, or news articles and seeing to what extent that changes their propensity to vote in a certain way or how they describe their political beliefs or their agreement with certain conspiracy theories, say. And I think the uh, that there's limitations to that research because often it's not done in the context of an actual online platform. It might be done in a sort of uh, mock platform or a, uh, a survey format where you're just shown a sort of image of a, a post-it and then before and after having seen it asked what you think about uh, some related issue. So it's that the environment in which the research is done does not perfectly match the environment uh, of the real world, which uh, limits the validity of the research to a certain extent. But I think an overall summary of that sort of media effects research is that uh, the impact of media tends to be quite small on average. Uh, it's very hard to change people's minds by showing them information, uh, at least one-off pieces of information. Uh, but two major caveats to that overall finding are that there's still a lot we don't know. Uh, it, and the two major possibilities that probably still need to be explored are one, while the average effect of uh, media, Facebook posts, tweets, YouTube videos, TikToks, and so on, on uh, what people think might be quite small, it's possible that the effects of exposure to certain types of content are much larger for either particular individuals or in particular communities. Um, for some subgroup of people who are perhaps, uh, for whatever reason, in some context where they're more susceptible to having their, their views changed. The other main possibility that I think needs further research is uh, to what extent, while exposure to one or two or ten pieces of uh, content on social media doesn't has, has very little probability of changing our views significantly. It might be that uh, sort of long-term exposure to certain narratives uh, and uh, sort of the cumulative effect of pieces of content with a particular viewpoint or leaning over a long period of time, uh, whether that cumulative effect might actually end up being significant. To my knowledge, there are no studies that answer that question very well at the moment, but uh, it's possible that that is the case, which would lead to quite a different uh, conclusion than the, the research that we have at the moment. So, uh, yeah, that, that would be, I, I think that 
work on media effects is probably the most relevant for thinking about to what extent our, our use of social media platforms changes what we think and how we act in the world. The, the other part of the question uh, was uh, going forward, what can we do to improve things? And I think we shouldn't wait for uh, strong conclusive answers about uh, the extent to which sort of technology has contributed to deteriorating political conflict in the past before we take action and try and use technology to improve uh, conflict risks going forward, uh, which is more or less the focus of my, my research at the moment. So I think regardless of the effect that technology has, uh, there are certain dynamics that are pretty unambiguous on social media platforms. The, the ranking algorithms that in large part influence and determine what we see when we uh, are on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or uh, whichever platforms we use, uh, the ranking algorithms to a large extent optimize for engagement currently. Uh, it's quite crude when you actually understand what they're doing. They uh, observe our reactions to uh, the content we see and and all those reactions that are observed are measurable uh, things like clicks and comments and reshares and uh, the, the amount of time we dwell looking at a particular piece of content, the amount of time we spend watching a video, all those sorts of measurable behaviors which are collectively known as engagement measures. And then uh, the platform will build a model of us as a user that allows them to predict uh, for a given piece of content, how likely we are to engage in those behaviors. So for a given uh, tweet that they haven't yet shown us, behind the scenes they will be predicting how likely we are to click on that tweet, how likely we are to uh, retweet it, uh, comment on it, uh, how likely we are to sort of spend a long time staring at it in the app. Um, and then the system overall tries to optimize the ranking primarily to maximize the chance of us uh, engaging in those measurable behaviors. This is a, a problem because there's a difference between uh, our choices and our behaviors and on the one hand and two other two other concepts which are often conflated. One is our preferences, what we want, and a second is uh, what's actually good for us. Uh, which is sometimes known as welfare. And so uh, there's a, a, a paradigm of thinking from economics known as revealed preferences, which says that uh, one way of measuring what people want is by observing what they do. And uh, you assume that people do what they want, essentially. So if, if I make a certain choice or if I behave in a certain way, then that choice or behavior is consistent with my preferences. Uh, this is... Uh, operationalized in online platforms because they're assuming that what we do, what we click on, what we uh, comment on, these measurable behaviors are perfectly reflective of what we want as uh, as people, as individuals. But uh, there's many examples where this connection breaks down. Well, what we do is often a useful signal for what we want. It's not uh, always the case that they're exactly the same thing. Uh, for example, uh, in sort of one extreme case, someone might be 
addicted to a certain type of content, you might have a user who uh, struggles with mental health issues related to body image and eating disorders. And so they might uh, be engaging behaviorally with a lot of content relating to eating disorders, but uh, continually engaging with that content is not actually what's in their, their best interests or uh, what they aspirationally want for themselves. Um, similarly, it might just be that uh, the set of content that's available on uh, in our feed that we see uh, or uh, shown is not really as expansive as what uh, we, we aspirationally want to spend our time engaging with. But nonetheless, because that's what available, that's what's available, we uh, engage with some of it out of habit or uh, just because of a sort of availability bias. Um, and so uh, this process of maximizing for engagement that is used in online platforms, it uh, doesn't uh, accurately reflect what we actually want for ourselves and what is valuable to us as humans, but it also creates media dynamics where people are, or content producers are incentivized to try and uh, grab people's attention and engagement as much as possible because that is what's rewarded in the system. If you're a media entity, and one of my collaborators, Jonathan Stray, has a very short definition of a media entity, which is an entity that uh, requires attention to, to survive and be sustainable. So if you're a media entity and you need attention, then you're incentivized by this system to uh, produce content that uh, is engaging and generates those sorts of measurable behaviors, uh, which leads to a bias in the types of content that are incentivized. Fundamentally, it incentivizes content that is often clickbaity or engagement-baity uh, that perhaps creates sort of high, strong emotional responses, is outrageous, causes us uh, to be angry or uh, to uh, respond in ways that uh, sort of yeah, strong emotional responses, which leads to an incentive for a certain type of uh, politics and style in which we communicate online, uh, and usually that is not the, the most it's not the most good faith ways of communicating that get rewarded. Uh, so. Uh, in my research, I'm looking at what other signals you could use to optimize for in ranking algorithms on social media that might be alternatives to this engagement-based approach. Uh, I should say at the outset, I'm not uh, proposing that we replace engagement uh, optimization completely. Online platforms, at least in their current business model, they themselves require engagement to be financially sustainable because they depend on ad revenue. So uh, to some extent, they will always need to optimize for engagement so that they keep their users around. But uh, there may be room for them to optimize partially for other objectives as well. And so fundamentally, I'm interested in what else could be optimized for that would uh, reduce conflict risks in society, reduce uh, the types of political conflict that uh, are likely to lead to harm or have some probability of leading to harm. And we can we can get into that in 
lots of detail, but uh, there's to, to basically to do that, we need some model of what uh, good pro-social interaction on social media looks like. And we need to formalize that in some way that is sufficiently close to uh, the sort of qualities of human relationships that we actually care about um, to be a, a safe thing to try and uh, promote and incentivize in, in social media. You did mention about ranking, and I totally agree with you because the moment as, as a consumer and if we are watching content on any platform, you get the top five or the top 10 ranked. Do you think that prior to this ranking, there would be some stage of moderation as well? Somebody or an algorithm, somebody still has to moderate what gets ranked? Or is all does all the information generally, I mean, all platforms would have different uh, ways of doing it, but is there always moderation and then ranking or every everything that is information goes out there and gets ranked so everybody or all the information gets an equal opportunity to get ranked so uh, all, all content on online platforms will pass through certain content moderation checks uh, maybe i just run through the standard pipeline of how a recommender system works which is sure, so a recommender sure. system is, is the ranking algorithm so there's uh sort of four or five stages it will when you refresh your feed on Facebook, effectively what happens is uh, all the available content on Facebook will first be subject to content moderation. So there'll be a bunch of classification algorithms that scan all the content and uh, tag or flag any content that they classify as uh, being something that breaks the policies of the platform. So it might be, uh, maybe it's, terrorist content, maybe it's uh, really abusive, maybe it contains nudity if nudity isn't allowed on the platform, uh, maybe it's uh, doxing someone and revealing their personal information against their, uh, their will. So any sort of content like that which is against platform policies will be detected and uh, taken out of the pool of content that's available to be recommended, at least in theory. Um, then the next step is uh, the amount of content on the platform is still sort of far too big to meaningfully uh, or uh, computationally efficiently process for every single user every time they look at their feed. So it will be whittled down to a much smaller list of candidate posts based on perhaps people you've followed or who you've connected to, your friends, uh, or what's most recent. So that they'll, they'll use a bunch of very broad, crude heuristics to generate items of content that are candidates for recommendation. Then the next stage is the, the core part of the ranking algorithm. There will be a, uh, a system which, uh, as I was talking about earlier, for each piece of content will predict the likelihood that you will engage in it in a certain way uh, and will aggregate those predictions into a single number. So for example, uh, maybe the platform thinks that uh, comments on posts are seven times more valuable than clicks. So it will take uh, seven times the probability that you uh, comment on the post plus uh, one times the probability that you click on the post. And that will sort of trade off different types of engagement against one another into a single number. 
the actual formulas they use will be more complicated than that, but that's the general idea. And there might be other terms in that ranking uh, function or that value function as well that not just sort of add to the, the prominence of content, but also detract from it. So perhaps the platform uh, didn't filter out a certain item of content completely, but they did detect that it was a little bit spammy or uh, it had a lot of typos in it or uh, it was not the most sort of good faith attempt at communication. There might be different reasons that they want to demote content without removing it entirely. So those will add terms that subtract from this, this overall number. And so all the candidates that were generated for a given user will be ranked from basically highest to lowest according to this, this single number. And then there's a final stage which happens, which is some form of re-ranking, which does not hugely change the order of the, the items in the ranked list, but uh, it will sort of tweak the ranking slightly to achieve certain objectives like making sure that you don't see uh, five very similar posts in the in a row uh, when you're scrolling through it will spread them out a bit uh, so that might be diversity along or diversity by who posted something it'll make sure you don't you see it from you see pieces of content from a variety of people or people uh, a variety of different content types or uh, a variety of different uh, categories, say, uh, and so there's this re-ranking stage which tweaks the ranking a bit, and then the top, however many items will be shown to you in the in the user interface. Uh, just looking at YouTube, I I was trying to understand where does monetization then come in because when you look at I'm just sticking with YouTube at the moment, there are some videos like you said that would get ranked and re-ranked, but uh, companies or, or organizations that are looking to advertise on particular videos, if they then get into those videos and that would also probably push that up the ranking, am I getting that right? Or once it goes through this re-ranking stage, that's when a, a corporate house would come in and say that, okay, these are the videos that we would like to advertise on or is it is it too late in this cycle that uh, monetization comes in? One, one possibility is that the, the overall ranking of recommendations that the user sees is not influenced by uh, the advertising that is on those videos themselves. Uh, it's, so it might, may just be that uh, the platform in the first instance optimizes for what videos it thinks. Yeah, so if we're talking about YouTube, YouTube might optimize for what videos it thinks the user will uh, most engage with and find valuable. And then whatever those happen to be, it will find ads to intersperse in that video or to, to display adjacent to that video. Uh, that's one possibility. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, it's possible that uh, the YouTube ranking algorithm is sort of tightly integrated with its advertising marketplace and it will not be optimizing for uh, user engagement, but ad revenue instead. And so it will be trying to find the best combination of uh, videos and ads that most overall optimizes uh, ad revenue for, for YouTube. 
I'm not quite sure where on the spectrum it operates in practice, but I've seen uh, certainly research and academic work that uh, describes designs for both both types of systems. Right. And as content creators, whether it's me or whether there are or, or my colleagues or people like me who are who are doing what we are doing on YouTube and you understanding the algorithm of or how this cycle works, what what do you think you would be advising someone? Because we are bombarded with uh, advice. What would you say is a good balance between actually first putting out content and then trying to figure this, this out. Well, what I'm trying to ask you is the value in understanding these systems. Yes, I, well, it depends what you care about. Uh, obviously, I would, so, I mean, this sort of optimization has been something people think about a lot for a long time. Ever since there were search engines, people have thought about search engine optimization. And to some extent, search engines are very similar to recommendations recommendation algorithms on social media in that they, uh, they're basically recommending items of content to you, links in response to some uh, prompt. I, it, yeah, if you are really trying to uh, sort of maximize the number of followers you have or to maximize the attention you get, uh, then obviously trying to cater to what the algorithm cares about is probably uh, something that you sort of instrumentally care about too and should try to do. But if uh, you're trying, if your goal with your, your project or the, the content that you're creating is uh, more sort of intrinsically motivated and you're trying to uh, do work that is that you, you personally find meaningful or is uh, or matches closely to your own measures of what is is valuable then uh, you should probably try to sort of resist the the incentives that are, are given to you from uh, external algorithms there's been uh, many examples in the last couple of decades of uh, content creators or or small businesses uh, optimizing very strongly or closely for what a particular algorithmic uh, marketplace uh, is trying to elicit. And then suddenly the algorithm changes and uh, they suddenly are getting a lot more attention than, sorry, a lot less attention than they originally uh, were. Uh, and so by optimizing too strongly for a particular algorithmic system, you're uh, in some sense putting yourself in a position of vulnerability should that system change so in terms of what the these systems themselves are uh, optimizing for as discussed they're, they're optimizing for engagement so i'm not necessarily uh, recommending this but basically uh, uh, framing your content in a way that grabs people's attention and makes them uh, click on it or uh, spend more time consuming it, that is uh, fundamentally going to lead to high ratings on average or high rankings on average. Um, 
the challenges that it's uh, I think that if you do that too strongly you end up generating sort of very hollow clickbaity content and uh, the consumers users uh, people people consuming your content will uh, probably be turned off by that at a certain point so it's sort of uh, trying to always toe this this threshold of being a little bit uh, clickbaity or having having compelling hooks for uh, to sort of grab people's attention, but not being so far in that direction that uh, you turn people off. Most platforms will also have uh, classifiers or predictive algorithms that try and detect the degree of sort of baitiness of content as well. So they themselves are also uh, trying to minimize what well, they're trying to optimize for genuinely engaging content rather than the sort of uh, hollow version of engagement. Um, that, that's not so precise uh, at the level of telling you exactly which, which words to use or that kind of thing. But I think, um, yeah, generally sort of providing compelling hooks that, that grab people's attention and uh, producing good content that uh, maintains their engagement uh, over the long term. Yeah. And and also, I guess, if it also depends on your, your base of listeners or uh, people that you expect to be listening to. So, for example, if you're putting material out, and I'm sticking with YouTube just to be just to keep it easier here. But if you're putting content out based on, for example, film, if you're putting content out based on sport, if you're putting content out based on a certain uh, field of entertainment, then by default, uh, like you were, you 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 did highlight that your click baity headlines or or stuff could work because your volume of listeners is bigger and chances of it going wrong are smaller because if people tune out, they tune out. But the amount of people that have anyway tuned and clicked in is is larger. As opposed to, for example, what we are currently doing or what we do, which is by default very niche. And I do not expect uh, five out of 100 people to listen to, to uh, what we are talking about. But yes, people who are listening to what we're talking about would stay on longer, probably uh, than they would on any other platform. So the duration of engagement would also be important or how important is that? So for example, if there's another channel or there's another content that's getting 100 clicks for 10 seconds or 15 seconds, as opposed to something like what we are doing, which could be five clicks, but the retention is much longer because it's an hour or whatever. Does that even matter? depends on the platform. So in the context of YouTube, uh, I think uh, the the primary measure of engagement they used is watch time. Um, and uh, there was a sort of transition they went through in, I believe, the early uh, 2010s that they, they used to optimize for clicks, which led to a lot of very clickbaity content which got people to click on videos but the actual content itself was no good so people didn't spend that long watching videos and then 
YouTube realized that was a problem, so they transitioned to optimizing primarily for watch time instead, which creates a, a different set of dynamics, but uh, it basically means that you need to structure your videos in such a way that uh, causes people to want to keep watching them. Um, there, there's a certain bias towards longer content that that generates. So if you can produce a, uh, a 10 minute video rather than a five minute video and maintain people's attention throughout the whole thing, you're sort of incentivized to do that because that will cause the content to be ranked more highly. Uh, on other platforms, so for example, with podcasts, podcasts are uh, slightly unusual in the sort of modern social media environment or content environment in that because of the way podcasts are distributed, providers of podcasts often, uh, at least if you're, you're listening in some app, I'm not sure how Spotify does podcast ranking, but if you're listening in some sort of uh, more independent app that uh, basically requires you to download a podcast um, in full uh, before you, you start listening to it, then uh, the distributor of that content has no way of knowing whether you uh, listen to the whole thing or if you just, uh, or if you never listen to it at all. Uh, all they can see from their end is that a person downloaded the content and that they were from a certain part of the world, perhaps. Um, so they, they are fundamentally unable to directly optimize for listening time because they can't observe how long people listen to the content they're distributing. Uh, and so uh, that's why the sort of dynamics of uh, podcast ranking and getting people's attention to subscribe or listen regularly to podcasts focuses much more on uh, asking people to review it so that it becomes more highly rated in various podcast stores, uh, trying to sort of raise awareness and get people to uh, download the podcast through other sort of um, marketing efforts. Uh, but to the best of my knowledge, most podcast distribution is not able to optimize directly for sort of the time people spend listening to them. True, that's interesting because I think uh, just to, to, to take a little bit more time on this particular subject where podcasts are concerned, the the original version of a podcast was always supposed to be audio. And yes, we did get into video. I'm talking about maybe 10 years back, the around 2008, I think that would be when podcasts started taking off 2008, 2010 with Joe Rogan and stuff like that, because he was doing visual stuff as well. But today there's been some kind of a crossover because most of the podcasts earlier would just be on on audio platforms. But what people have now started doing is uh, recording audio and then putting it out on YouTube as well. So it's just strange that somebody would get into primarily a visual platform, what YouTube is. You want to look at stuff, but then you have a static image and a conversation, which is an audio. But anyway, that's the podcasting world. And I wouldn't want you to take too much of your time on that. And Luke, I just wanted to get back to something interesting you mentioned earlier. And I, before I forget, I said I wanted to come back to that, where you spoke about engagement online and uh, ideas that you think we should explore or could explore moving forward to 
to try to get a little bit more, I would use the word positivity out of what discussions are happening online because that could lead to better outcomes. And I was just wondering, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, if we do look at uh, media news channels or you look at interviews or you look at group discussions, it tends to be centered around people not agreeing with each other. So, for example, if I if I had to do an interview and I wanted to get the most out of that interview, I don't mean uh, as far as content is concerned, but most viewership, then I would have to get two opposing parties because that makes good viewing. There's some fireworks in there. Now, I have been told that is true, but I don't really know whether that has been explored to a larger extent because I have also on the other end seen two people who would collaborate with an idea and maybe that to me is more interesting as well it's not that we just want conflict so is there some way that we could consider bringing this together as in okay if you and I disagree but that should not be the end of that argument and then we can move on to the next we can start talking about four things we may disagree on one but we may find common ground somewhere in the middle and then that becomes the common ground that we can move forward with rather than ending everything at the first disagreement we have. So is there some kind of platform that we can, or you think it won't work or it has not been tried before where people who actually agree come together and talk? There's a lot of very big sort of questions uh, there, but I'll try and tackle some aspects of it. Fundamentally, I think it is possible to design sort of recommended ranking algorithms in a way that uh, is more positive and pro-social than the status quo at the moment. Uh, and it depends on how you sort of formalize or characterize what certain patterns of interaction or engagement or content uh, that you you think are valuable. So one heuristic which i think has a lot of promise is uh, the idea of uh, a, a, an item of content having uh, sort of diverse support or support in some form amongst people who would normally disagree with one another and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they agree with the views expressed in this content or the sentiment of this content but uh, if uh, say, in the US context, a Republican posts something that a Democrat uh, sort of is appreciative of the way in which it's expressed or vice versa, then that's probably a, uh, a good signal for uh, the degree to which that uh, piece of content contributes positively to the, the public discourse. Uh, and this heuristic, it's been implemented recently in uh, some of your listeners may have heard of Twitter Birdwatch or uh, Twitter Community Notes, as it was renamed to following Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. Uh, so this is a, a feature on Twitter, which I believe is still in the process of being rolled out globally, but essentially it uh, is a crowdsourced sort of fact-checking system. So if a user opts in to be part of this program, then they are invited to, whenever they see a tweet that they consider to be misleading in some form, they can contribute uh, a, a note that adds necessary context to uh, the tweet. And 
these notes are not shown publicly straight away, but uh, other users who are part of the program can rate those notes as either helpful or unhelpful. And then uh, the note is only shown uh, everyone, public shown to everyone, uh, if it is rated as helpful by essentially people from both sides of politics. So uh, uh, for example, uh, early on in the program when it was rolled out uh, widely in the US, there was a tweet from the White House during Joe Biden's administration, which was boasting about uh, the sort of social security um, payments having increased by the largest amount ever under his uh, administration. And a, a Birdwatch user added a context note to this tweet that said, uh, yes, that's true, but it, the reason it's the largest amount ever is because it's indexed to inflation and inflation is very high at the moment. Um, and so uh, that's sort of very useful context that uh, uh, in some sense sort of removes the veil on uh, a certain example of political spin and evidently it was sufficiently uncontroversial enough uh, to have been thought helpful even by Democrats who agree with uh, Joe Biden's overall agenda and are broadly sympathetic to, to his presidency. So, uh, and I think ultimately in that case, the White House took the tweet down because it was uh, too embarrassing to leave it on the platform. Um, so it, yeah, th this implementation of this sort of uh, bridging heuristic, as I would call it, where you're recognizing content that is in some sense endorsed or approved of by people from both sides of politics. Uh, I think that's quite a powerful heuristic and there's potential to incorporate that more thoroughly into the, the main core ranking algorithms on these platforms. Another part of your question was alluding to uh, the fact that humans have a sort of innate uh, predilection for or, or preference for disagreement or conflict or outrage, perhaps not taking part of it in it themselves, but at least if conflict is happening somewhere, we tend to be drawn to paying attention to it. And that sort of psychological uh, predilection is uh, a much harder thing to counteract. I'm not sure if, uh, yeah, well, I think there's there would be a limit on the extent to which simply by changing the design of the, the environments and the forums in which we communicate, we can uh, nullify that sort of innate human uh, uh, tendency. But I do think we can uh, get some of the weight there by changing the incentives of what content is produced and what is most visible and by implication what people, what it's easiest for people to pay attention to. If, if it becomes harder to seek out uh, content of that sort, content that's divisive, uh, that represents people sort of arguing unproductively or in bad faith, uh, then people will pay less attention to it because it requires more work on their part to, to, to seek it out. Whereas uh, if we leave things as the status quo at the moment where uh, that content is naturally sort of rising up and becoming the most visible within uh, recommender systems and social media, uh, then 
it's very easy to indulge in that sort of natural tendency that we have, which I don't think is is helpful. Right. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts would be on when we talk about content or we talk about the as far as the information world is concerned, it's just one big uh, information pool. Is it or do you think there is any merit in depending on where you are? There are different cultures, there are different people, preferences, ideas, my reality, everybody else's reality. And the fact that we're trying to put all this into one bucket and make one final global reality, that could be a reason why there are there are issues where there is acceptability and then there is no acceptability. Or should we just look at what makes sense to a particular region? For example, let's talk about Asia, let's talk about Europe for a minute, just to understand uh, mindsets are different in different continents, places, countries. Is there any room for that kind of acceptability to to put uh, to put if there are restrictions? Or we spoke about moderation earlier. What what needed to be moderated for somebody in a particular society may not be accurately uh, fair for somebody else who comes in from another part of the world in a different society. So having one rule set for everyone where we do know that the thought process is different to start with. Is that something that you've ever thought of or you would want to comment on? Sure, yes. I think uh, certainly the way, the, the way platforms are set up at the moment, it is in there. Uh, yeah, I completely agree that there are different cultural norms about what speech uh, is appropriate or taboo. Uh, there's different cultural norms around uh, the yeah the the types of ways we want to sort of govern our societies, and uh, I think it is uh, right and just for those to be reflected in the the online forums that we we use to communicate. The incentives of online platforms at the moment don't uh, or when I say incentives, I mean the, those faced by the, the corporate entity, uh, so Facebook, the company. Uh, enforcement of their their content moderation policies uh, is cheapest for them to do if it's the same everywhere. They don't need to train people in hundreds of different uh, bespoke uh, policies for different regions of the world. Uh, instead, they just have one policy that applies to everyone, which makes things simple and cheaper for them to, to moderate and enforce. Uh, there's a lot of issues with this, as you've alluded to. I, yeah, uh, I'm not sure there are any short-term easy answers, but there are, uh, there's a lot of work being done on sort of how do you design these systems in a way that is, is self-governed. So for example, uh, the, uh, some of your listeners may know of Glenn Weil, uh, who right. uh, started a, a foundation called Radical Exchange, which looks at some of these issues of um, the, the principle of subsidiarity, that governance of uh, our sort of social structures and institutions should be uh, determined at the lowest level uh, possible, and it shouldn't sort of become any more, more general or overarching than uh, absolutely necessary out of respect for people's autonomy and uh, an acknowledgement of their, their sort of expertise in their particular local context. 
which I think there's a lot of really interesting work being done in that setting. There's also a bunch of proposals around ways in which people can specifically uh, select, or sorry, specifically set the sort of speech policies for the platforms that they spend time on. So uh, Amy Zhang from the University of Washington has done a bunch of work on uh, the use of sort of uh, juries to make content moderation decisions. That's really interesting, I think. Uh, there's also following uh, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, uh, obviously one of the, the platforms where people uh, moved to in protest was Mastodon, which is a much more decentralized federated uh, structure for how a social network might operate. And there are certain uh, Mastodon servers which uh, governed not in a sort of unilaterally top-down way, but in more of a bottom-up emergent way. Uh, one, for instance, that I'm a part of is called Social Co-op, which is structured as a cooperative. Uh, so it's jointly owned by uh, its users. Users contribute uh, a very small nominal amount to pay for the, the compute costs of uh, hosting the, the, the server, but uh, they also have the ability to sort of collaboratively uh, deliberate on what the speech policies of the platform should be. Uh, and that, to me, feels like a very uh, sort of unique, different dynamic for what social media might be in the future uh, in a much more widespread sense. It, it, it feels, in some sense, it's telling that it feels so alien that uh, users might have so much power and input over uh, the way their sort of online environment is governed. But um, it, yeah, it, it feels quite optimistic and hopeful to me, I think. Mm. And as a current uh, PhD candidate where you are going to be definitely whatever research you do, you, you are going to depend or you do depend a lot of a lot on accurate information as far as research or data is concerned. But considering if you look at technology, if you look at AI and the implications of social media. Now, we do have age groups here. So, for example, I grew up reading a newspaper and then transitioned to, 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 to the computer. And so my time span of concentration is much longer compared to my son, for example. And as we move forward, the time spans of attention seem to be getting lower. So what I'm trying to get at is uh, a person who's 10 or 12 years old today is going to be the 25-year-old consumer 10 years from now. And when you do, do research or when you're looking at data, it's going to be easier for you to get data of a human being, for example, for the last 100 years because behaviors have been relevantly uh, similar as far as uh, information is concerned. But because of this radical change now, how easy or difficult is it for you to get accurate data on what a 10-year-old is actually thinking, consuming, seeing or not seeing? Because that may not be out there as yet because that person still has to go through building their uh, thoughts on what they want their world to look like. And do you or have you encountered anything as far as that is concerned to be very accurate with the data that you're referring to? So a, a fundamental limitation of much of the research on sort of user behavior, human subject research on social media is that uh, there's very limited access to data from actual platforms that people are using, be they adults or be they 10-year-olds. 
10 or 11 year olds. And uh, so there's a sort of data access problem. We, for the most part, uh, don't, uh, oh, as external researchers in academia or civil society, we don't have access to a data set showing us what 10 year olds are doing on uh, TikTok or their, their platform of choice. Uh, we, more consequentially, uh, I, I don't think data access alone would be enough to really sort of understand uh, if we're trying to understand the effect of the platform on uh, children's behavior or anyone's behavior, you would need the ability to run uh, experiments on these platforms and sort of make some intervention and see what effect does that intervention have. Uh, that's that ability to run experiments is sort of one step beyond uh, what uh, most people are talking about at the moment in terms of platform transparency, but it would be what is required to, to really study uh, the effects of platforms on human behavior. There's additional considerations as well around uh, sensitivity of information and particularly when children are concerned, uh, there's, yeah, obviously, and rightly so, very strict ethical considerations around privacy of children and, uh, yeah, the, the idea of conducting experiments on children, even if it's just sort of tweaking what they say on a social platform uh, slightly, uh, the, yeah, there's potential uh, risks and considerations there that need to be taken into account. Um, I don't, that said, I don't think there's, uh, I think, I suspect part of your question was around in the case of adults, uh, we've the pace of change in their sort of behavior and environment, uh, has been more static in the past. And so we've been able to rely on older evidence to make inferences about, uh, how they behave in the present. I think that was the implication you're making. Whereas for children, because things are changing so quickly, uh, their sort of patterns of attention and operating online are changing much more quickly. And we don't have this long history of data set to, uh, to draw on. I'm not quite sure I agree with that. I think there's, I mean, over the last century, there's been so many sort of major changes in uh, the media environment, uh, there's radio, then television, then the internet, and all of these have been sort of continually more and more integrated into our lives. I don't think it's necessarily a step change between, uh, say, the, the generation who are currently in their teenage years and uh, people in their, their 30s or 40s. Um, there's always going to be a degree of continuity between what's come before and uh, what uh, is happening at the moment and a degree of difference. And uh, yeah, I, I think to, to make sort of to draw solid conclusions and do reliable research, we always need to sort of look at what's actually happening in the moment uh, in, the, in the people we're, we're studying. So Luke, you earlier touched on uh, while we were discussing, the, I think it was the first 10 minutes, we briefly spoke about uh, conspiracy theories that do come out uh, via social media. And uh, from what I can see, that has been the biggest beneficiary of 
all social media. I don't literally mean beneficiary, but I mean those stories tend to get amplified to an extent beyond any imagination. One is obviously because of the nature of of the content. It's entertaining. It's it's interesting. I think 50% of the people just do it for fun. Uh, unfortunately, there are some very serious consequences to people who take it too seriously. But again, when and how do, does that line get drawn? Because you could call yourself a conspiracy theorist or you could call yourself a conspiracy analyst. And these are two different things because if you do want information from every source, then every conspiracy is something that you won't know about if it's a conspiracy theory. And then you analyze it logically yourself and move on. You don't get stuck onto it and you don't get drawn into it. But what tends to also get put out there is this is taboo and this is not what we should even be engaging on because it's it's a conspiracy theory. Now, based on what's happened over the last few decades, a lot of these conspiracy theories have turned out to be true. And that fuels current conspiracy theories to to the extent that, yes, there may be some truth in this as well. And it links back to our first question where we spoke about validity and truth on the internet. What is your take on, while you were talking about what you would think of building as a platform that is more engaging, does the aspect of uh, conspiracies come in as something that is interesting for you or you see this as just entertainment and nobody taking it seriously? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't dismiss them in that way. I think, as, as you say, there's... Uh, yeah, there are conspiracy theories that have turned out to be true. And uh, so, for example, Cory Doctorow, um, in sort of criticism of some of the uh, attempts to improve content moderation, has said something like uh, the, the best way to reduce people's beliefs in conspiracy theories is to make sure there are no conspiracies. Uh, but there are ways in which conspiracies can be discussed and or p potential conspiracy theories can be discussed and deliberated on which uh, are sort of more or less grounded in reality and sort of uh, sensible, uh, reasonable thinking. And I guess my ideal for how conspiracies should be dealt with in social platforms is that they would be discussion of conspiracies would be incentivized to conform to that sort of uh, good faith reasonable evidence-based ideal um, there was a platform recently which uh, unfortunately is closing down but it was um, called idea market and the, the premise of it was that people could uh, express uh, statements they thought were true and they would uh, people people would trade in some sense on the, uh, the credibility of those those statements uh, and ultimately over the long term people would accrue wealth and reputation for having identified true things early so uh, in that on that platform there was a lot of uh, people trying to identify uh, ideas which seem a little bit outrageous at the moment but might be plausible in the long term so things like uh, 
UFOs needing to be taken a lot more uh, seriously. Uh, things like, um, trying to think of another example. Parallel worlds. Oh yes, yeah, parallel worlds, uh, sort of a, a physics idea. Uh, yeah, ideas which there perhaps isn't enough evidence for to say conclusively one way or the other at the moment, or um, uh, yeah, that, that seem a little bit conspiratorial, but uh, there are perhaps good reasons to, to take more seriously. Um, I think the, or the, the, yeah, the interface for this particular platform didn't uh, facilitate that much in the way of sort of nuanced back and forth discussion, but it did sort of have a dynamic of uh, respecting that enterprise of trying to um, uh, correct mistaken beliefs, uh, including beliefs that perhaps there is no conspiracy where there actually is one um, early on and talk about these sensibly rather than just shutting them down is uh, a valuable thing to do. Designing algorithms or ranking algorithms in such a way, as I was describing earlier, where you have two groups who disagree. So one might be a group of people who believe uh, that a conspiracy should be given, a conspiracy theory should be given more um, attention and taken seriously. And another group are very, uh, or, or think that it, it's a, a false conspiracy theory, that it's not actually true. Uh, if, if what is promoted is discussions of that conspiracy theory, the possibility that there is a conspiracy that are valued by both of those groups. So if it's a, a discussion of the evidence for a particular conspiracy framed in a way that is acceptable and seen as uh, plausible and common sense, even by the people who disagree that there is any conspiracy there, that to me is probably a good way of recognizing and identifying uh, content related to conspiracies that is uh, treads the, finds the middle ground between taking them too seriously and not taking them seriously enough. Mm. And I do have a suggestion. I know it's not possible, but I just want to hear what you think about it. The two things that can be done to, I think, uh, solve this issue of conflict and where or the negativity that goes on online. One is take anonymity out of it. Let people identify themselves. There should be clear uh, and accurate identification on people who are engaged. And the second is take bots out of, of out of all social media platforms. Do you think doing any of these two things would help? In, in a lot of contexts, I think they would. Um, certainly anonymity in most cases allows people to not sort of face consequences or reputational risks associated with behaving in a certain way. And I don't think that's helpful. Uh, similarly, bots, uh, if, if it's too easy to create bots that uh, behave however you want them to behave, then it's very easy to for bad actors to uh, make it look like there's mass support for an idea when actually very few people support it or to uh, just sort of gently steer uh, conversation in a certain way or make it just make it more divisive than it would otherwise be, which uh, is, is a big sort of security risk. But at the same time, there are uh, 
benefits to anonymity in certain contexts. Sometimes there needs to be whistleblowers. There needs to be uh, or people need to need to be able to present ideas in a way that, uh, for their own safety or security, can't be attributed to them. Um, and there there are helpful bots that uh, uh, I don't know re report the weather or mm. um, summarize states of the world. They're pretty simple examples, but um, yeah, there are sort of good faith bots that people find genuine value in as well. So uh, I think that the most important thing is uh, for people to know uh, at what, what what is the status of the person whose communications they're being exposed to. At the moment, it's often not possible for someone to tell, uh, is this person a bot? Are they using a pseudonym? Uh, is it a real person acting in good faith? Is it a real person acting in bad faith? Um, a, a lot could be done just to make that more transparent. Um, it would, I think it would help enormously if uh, people could tell with a high degree of confidence whether the, the person they're communicating with is, is a real person, whether they are who they claim they are, um, yeah, I think mm. that is a strong signal. Yeah. And for you, Luke, you're working on your current project. You are looking at broader solutions. You're looking at the future as far as most of what you are currently doing. Now, we have, uh, I would say, about 85 to 90% of people listening to this particular discussion uh, is in the age group of 12 to 24. You have young students, you have people who are halfway through their education cycle or deciding on what to do, what not to do. From from what you would want to say, is there something that we have not covered here? Or if you had an opportunity to speak directly to the listener and integrate what you strongly believe in, what your values are as far as uh, uh, technology is concerned and how this gets integrated into social ramifications uh, would you like to say something to that and uh, open up a little bit more so you have uh, a free house here to put your idea forward on where you would want this to go and where you see this going in the next uh, few decades sure uh so perhaps in in the short term i would uh encourage people to invest the time in uh, creating some sort of online identity for themselves that is not dependent on any particular platform. Create your own website. Um, if, if you're wanting to be uh, have some sort of public presence online, that is, uh, I think it's important for you to own that yourself in some sense. Uh, more broadly, I don't think uh, the sort of what we feel are at the moment increased risks related to sort of public division and politics and the challenges faced by uh, those uh, risks uh, in relation to sort of increasing technologies, including generative AI technologies like ChatGPT, uh, they're only going to become more salient uh, for the foreseeable future. And I don't think this problem's going away over the next few decades. Um, I would encourage people to 
uh, at the very least, uh, try and be well informed about uh, where the content you're consuming comes from, uh, try and uh, act in good faith online, uh, try and sort of model the patterns of information consumption and uh, sort of internet use that you think it would be good for everyone to have. Uh, and more specifically, if you're interested in working on any of these issues, uh, I think there's, there's so much that needs to be done in terms of figuring out how to design technologies better and in, in ways that are safer for society, uh, in ways that promote uh, positive coordination and uh, relationships between people. Uh, there, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So if, if you're at all interested in uh, that kind of work, I would strongly encourage you to do so. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, attention in this area at the moment, uh, but uh, yeah, we need more people working on these issues. So uh, yeah, I would encourage people to, uh, to do that if that's of interest. And once again, Luke, I know you've spent a lot of your time talking to us, but before we let you go, is there a, a particular website where you would want to direct people who are listening or students who are listening to us now uh, to your work or would you want to share something that points to where your research could be found or any interesting stuff online about you that you think you would want to share? Sure. Uh, I mean, only if people are interested, but my, my personal website is lukethorburn.com. My surname will probably be in the show notes, but that's L-U-K-E-T-H-O-R-B-U-R-N.com. All my research is there. And in particular, if you're interested in uh, sort of the broad research agenda related to improving conflict through the use of ranking algorithms on social media, there's a website, bridging.systems, which uh, is the, the sort of base for all that work. And if, if you're interested in uh, working on this and uh, you're uh, yeah, looking to be involved or contribute in some way, please do feel free to email me. I'm always happy to answer questions and help people out if I can. Great. Once again, Luke, thank you so much from everyone here. But before we let you go, I once again want to ask you if you had an opportunity opportunity to think of probably a couple of issues that need to be solved immediately as far as the subject we've been talking about what would you highlight uh, and and uh, and rank right on top on two or three issues that need immediate solutions or corrections so uh, well, so one thing that we've discussed is uh, being able to distinguish, we need technical methods for distinguishing between content that has been generated by an algorithm such as ChatGPT and content which has been generated by a human. Uh, that, that's always going to be an ongoing process of trying to develop more reliable methods for that, but that's a, a very sort of concrete technical method or, or question that we need to solve. Um, Research-wise, I think we need to uh, have a much stronger understanding of the relationship between the affordances and the design of online platforms and what design decisions lead to uh, in terms of social dynamics and real world outcomes. There's uh, some work in that direction that's being aggregated by the Pro Social Design Network, but 
uh, our, our understanding of the connection between design choices of online platforms on the one hand and the way people communicate and coordinate with each other on the other. The, the links between those two things are very poorly understood in general. So uh, that's uh, yeah, the sort of uh, description of the, the large research agenda that I think is most critical going forward. All right. And once again, thank you so much, Luke, for talking to us. It was really a pleasure. I haven't, uh, I haven't looked at the clock, but yes, I think we, we've we've gone well above an hour. And thank you so much for your time on that. I just hope you enjoyed your time with us. And if we ever have to call you back, you would make the mistake of coming back and talking to us. No, not at all. I've enjoyed this very much. Thanks so much for your your interest and for uh, all the excellent questions, Vicky. इस हब हॉपर ओरिजिनल को सुनने के लिए आपका शुक्रिया अगर आप भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करना चाहते हैं तो हब हॉपर स्टूडियो वेबसाइट पे रजिस्टर करें और एक मिनट के अंदर अंदर अपना खुद का पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करें यही नहीं स्टूडियो देता है आपको पूरी आजादी कहीं भी कभी भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करने की सिर्फ तीन आसान स्टेप्स में तो साथ में अपना पॉडकास्ट शुरू करने के लिए तैयार जस्ट हॉप ऑन हब हॉपर सिंपली कॉन्टेंट